I was talking uh, with a friend this week, and we were kind of recounting our mutual love of a certain TV show. And we were talking about, we're both kind of older um, people, we're not spring chickens anymore, and so we, you know, it kind of goes into that conversation of how we don't watch TV like we used to, and used to have to wait a week, you know, for the next episode, but now they release an entire season all at one time, and and who has enough self-control to resist just watching as that little dial says the next one starts and, you know, 10, 9, 8, and you're like, oh, just bring it, right? And so we both had watched this show. I mean, I think you could, I think the term is we binged this show. And we were talking about the fact that at the end, the season finale, um, like many season finales, was a cliffhanger, right? That they, they drew you in and you'd been, you know, on the edge of your seat for how many hours, you know, watching the show and you get to the season finale and you get a taste of what is coming and then it ends, right? And then we have to wait like six months or whatever it is. And so it's very, very cruel. And I was reading a, um, I was reading a review actually of that season finale and the reviewer said this, this is how cliffhangers work. They overload our nervous systems, leave us a little breathless, and yes, make us frustrated. The really great ones should feel like the narrative equivalent of an almost sneeze. The pleasure comes from being almost satisfied, but not quite. Now, that might be a little bit dramatic in describing um, a TV show, but I don't think it's that dramatic in describing this final scene that we have in Mark's gospel. If you haven't been with us, if you're visiting uh, for the first time today, we have been, since the beginning of the year, we've been working through the second book in the New Testament, which is the, what's, what's thought to be the oldest recording of the good news of Jesus according to Mark. And what we've experienced um, as we've gone through that is just nonstop action, right? Uh, Mark, is no, Mark is known for not beating around the bush, that he gets right to it, and one of the words he uses over and over in this gospel is immediately. And so we're jumping from one scene to the next over and over again. He hardly takes a breath before moving to the next th- scene. And what, what, have we, what have we witnessed? Well, we've seen Jesus show up, and he's one who teaches with authority. We've seen Jesus heal lepers and, and, and heal those who are blind. We've seen Jesus calling sinners and tax collectors to himself and then feasting with them and also calling children to himself and, and not dismissing them. That we've seen Jesus speaking to the wind and the waves and, and lo and behold, the wind and the waves listen to him and obey him. That we've seen Jesus feeding thousands of people on two separate occasions and with just a few loaves of bread that we've seen Jesus finally last week entering into the city, the long-awaited destination of Jerusalem, and there are shouts of praise. There is lots of expectation about what is going to happen. And then if you've been with us over the course of this week, we have seen all of that unravel. And we've seen all of it come apart. 
And we watched Jesus just a few nights ago kneel before his disciples who he had gathered together for one last meal and wash their feet. And we've watched them all run away from him. We've watched him be betrayed. We've watched the ones who knew him best deny even knowing him. And we've watched Jesus finally on Friday be executed. And this is the final scene. This is the finale. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white, on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, and he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, and go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. Your word is truth, and we pray that you would unify us in that truth this morning, that you would help us to see more clearly uh, the risen Jesus and what that means um, for our lives right now. For those who don't know him or don't know about him, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All along in Mark's gospel, um, you're tired of me talking about the questions probably if you've been here that Mark has been asking us. But he asked these questions and people who meet Jesus ask these questions of Jesus. Who is this? Who is this man who teaches with authority? Who is this? His disciples ask when he talks to the winds and the waves, understandably, who is this who speaks to the winds and the waves and the wind and the waves? Listen to him. That's a good question. Who is this? Not everyone can do that. And you might be here this morning, uh, and maybe, maybe you're here and you don't normally come to church, and you might be asking, what is the big deal about Jesus, Right? Why does it seem that, that all of history hangs upon a man who hung upon a cross? It seems bizarre. Why are we still talking about him to this day? What does it mean when we call him the Christ? What does it mean that he is a king? A king of kings, we call him, and a lord of lords. What is his kingdom like? Those are the kind of questions that we've been asking over the last several months. And now here... In the season finale, we get a huge reveal, right? We get a shocking twist. Now, if you were following carefully, then you may have been able to kind of read between the lines and seen it coming. And Jesus even explicitly told his disciples exactly what was going to happen, but they still heard what they wanted to hear. And they don't know what's happening. They don't know what's going on. Jesus rises from the dead, 
And then Mark just leaves us hanging. Mark gets to the end, and basically the, the women who have come to find Jesus, they leave the tomb, they're afraid, and then it's like, hard stop. What? Now, there's a lot of debate over the ending of Mark's um, gospel. And if you go back and read a lot of commentators, and I'm sure you all will this afternoon, and if you do that, what you'll find is that there's a lot of debate. Did Mark actually intend to end his gospel in this manner? Did he, did he intend to just stop it so abruptly, right? And some people, you know, will say, no, surely he didn't, and surely the original ending was lost somewhere. And if you open up your Bible and you look right now at the end, there will even be um, an additional 9 through 20 um, verses that, that are added there. Um, they're found in later manuscripts, but the earliest manuscripts, they're not there. And, you know, what a lot of commentators think is that just like us, Um, that people were really uncomfortable with a cliffhanger ending and they wanted to finish it. Um, That they added a few more verses. But I think that this ending makes sense for Mark's gospel. I think this is where he's been leading us all along, this one who has introduced us to these kind of questions, these vital questions, that this narrator who has been raising these questions is now leaving you, the reader, the hearer, with one last question. If this is true, what's next? If this is true, how does everything change? It's sort of a fill-in-the-blank last question. If the resurrection actually happened, if this man is who he said he is, and he actually rose from the dead, my life changes in blank ways. Fill in the blank. Before we can fill in that blank, I want to think about a few things first. Let's just talk briefly about what actually happened in this passage, what's happening here. Um, Why does it matter? And And then that question, what do we do with it? What happened? Why does it matter? And what do we do with it? What's, what's happening here? We left off on Friday with the crucifixion of Jesus, and we, the last passages we read on Good Friday that his body was being taken down and put into a tomb. And Judas had betrayed him, sold him for a little bit of silver. The rest of the disciples who promised to never leave him, even if they had to go to, the de- to, to death with him, they all ran away and, and they fled. Peter denied three times even knowing Jesus And you have to think that on this morning, they were all hiding, right? I mean, they're they're nowhere to be found. They're not in this final scene because they they don't know what to do next. They must think that everything is over, right? That it was all like some sort of bad dream. And maybe they feel even a little bit duped. Like we, we left our families. As Peter told us earlier, we left everything to follow you. We left our jobs, we left our families to follow this carpenter from Nazareth, hoping that he would be the true king and savior of Israel, and now he's dead, and maybe they feel a little foolish, and maybe they also feel a little bit scared, thinking if they came after Jesus, maybe they're going to come after us. Their expectations of what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem with Jesus could not have been more deadly wrong. And they're afraid for their own lives, most likely. Um, The crowds are probably going to come searching for us as well. 
maybe they're going to do to us what they did to him. And while the men are hiding, the women go straight to the tomb. <laughs> you notice that? In every gospel, that they, the men are nowhere to be found on that morning, and yet the women are not afraid to be associated with Jesus, but they get up and they had bought spices and they go directly to a graveyard. They go to find Jesus' body because they want to anoint his body. And they don't even know when they get there how they're going to get in. I mean, they know that the tomb has been covered up with a huge stone. And even as they're walking there, they ask the question that Mark records for us. Who's going to open the, the tomb for us, I wonder? I don't know. And then they get there. And lo and behold, the tomb is already open. And so they do what any logical, sane person would do. They go into the tomb. I mean, what? Not, that would not have been my move. Now, running away, like, scared and afraid would have been what I did right then, right? You know, obviously, something is amiss. The tomb is open. I'm not going to walk in there, but that's exactly what they do. And they walk into the tomb, and they see a young man, Mark tells us, in a white robe, and presumably an angel, and he kind of, I mean, it's, this is a lot more casual in some ways than it is in other Gospels. Um, this young man in a white robe just tells them, like, he's not here, he rose. And, you know, if you go, go tell the others and then meet him in Galilee, like he said. And, you know, they're obviously alarmed because he tells them not to be alarmed. Um, don't be alarmed easy for you to say, right? We're standing in a tomb where there once was laying a dead person who's not there anymore. And so at that point, they go back and they leave. They're terrified. Jesus, they're told, is risen from the dead. And this young man, this angel, tells them to go back and to tell the disciples and to tell Peter. He's careful to point out that this isn't the end of the story. That the story, it, it doesn't end with your failure and it doesn't end with Jesus' death. What you thought was an end is actually the beginning of something that is miraculous and incredible and that your mind cannot even conceive of. So what does it mean, right? Man, how do I ca capture what the resurrection means in just a few moments? What does it mean? What happened is simple enough. It only takes a few words to describe that. What it means is what the rest of the New Testament is all about. Certainly the women who are leaving the tomb didn't immediately understand what had happened. They didn't immediately understand what it means. That's why for a, for a little while there, as they're traveling back to find the disciples, they kept their mouths shut. Did, did this really happen? If it did, what? <laughs> he rose from the dead? What now what? what? What what are we doing? They're terrified. But soon I imagine as they're walking back to the disciples, if you can just envision that they start to talk and they start to piece it together. He rose from the dead. But he, he, he came here, as we've talked about, on the week of Passover. He came to Jerusalem during this festival when, when all these people were gathering to celebrate God's deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery. It's a week when they remember that their ancestors had obeyed God and they had sacrificed a lamb and they had taken the blood of that lamb and they had smeared it over their doorpost so that when the angel of death 
came and passed by them so that they might be delivered. And you can imagine them walking down the road and thinking, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. Maybe this is what he meant, that he came to deliver us ultimately from slavery and from bondage and from death. What does that mean? It it means this. It means that you were not created to die. That you were made, that every single person here, that every single person who has lived on the face of this earth was not created in order to die. You were created in order to live fully before the face of God without fear and without shame and without guilt and without the dread of death. But when our first parents, our spiritual parents, when they first doubted God's goodness, when they first turned against him and sinned against him and doubted that he was good, what it did was it sent the entire, it fractured everything and it sent the entire world into a tailspin. And scripture tells us that every single human that was born after them has been born dead in their trespasses and their sins that we have been born spiritually dead, that we're unable to actually please God. There's no one who can love him with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and their neighbor as themselves at every moment, at every second, at every millisecond of every day. There's no one who can do it. And it's a dire situation because what we're also told is that the wages of all of our sin is death. That the result of sin entering into the world, when sin entered into the world, death entered into the world, and the wages of our sin is death. And so deep down, what all of us are most longing for is to be reunited, even if we don't realize it. That that homesickness that some of us feel in our heart, that that desire to be fully known, that desire to be fully loved, that desire to be fully seen and embraced is really a desire for what we were made for. It's to see our creator face to face. And the story of scripture, the story of the world has been leading up to this season finale. What we need is deliverance. Not from Egyptians, not from what the disciples thought, simply from Romans. God cares about that type of oppression too. But Jesus came to deliver us from more than that, from our greatest enemy, which is death. And so Paul, later in the New Testament, begins to explain it and begins to put kind of meat on those bones. And he explains that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, who was born of a woman who was born underneath the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. You see, in order for us to be redeemed from the curse of sin and death, there has to be one, there has to be one in the flesh, there has to be a human who perfectly keeps the law and who does it on our behalf. There has to be one who then also can sit in the seat of judgment on our behalf And take on all the wages of our sin, which is death. Who is this, right? That's the question that we've been asking over and over again. It's that this is Jesus. 
This is who he is, the only man who ever fully loved God and his neighbor. At the end of his life is not crowned, but he is condemned in our place so that you and I who put our trust in him never taste of condemnation, ever. The grave couldn't ultimately hold Jesus down because he was one who was righteous. And so Jesus rose from death, having fully paid the penalty to the full extent that he drank that cup of wrath to the last drop that he entered the grave. And he fully extinguished it, right? So that death could no longer hold him down. And that he broke the curse. And that means that all who this morning who call upon his name for the forgiveness of sins, it means you died with him. That you entered the grave with him. That you rose again with him from the grave. And that you are not what you once were. That you are part actually of the new creation. That's what the New Testament goes to links to try to describe to us, to try to work into our brains. You're part of the new creation. You rose with Christ. You are now dead to sin and you are now alive to God. You are at peace with God. So here's the question that we end with. What do we do with it? What do we do with that information? Right? That, that's the question that Mark is leaving us with. If the tomb is empty, then what's next for you? How do you fill in the blank? What's the rest of, of the story? Some of us, have, we've heard the story of the resurrection for years, but we haven't really been listening, and the proof is, is in our lives because we live like dead people. We live in fear and shame. We live grasping for something that might bring us life. We live afraid to be known, to be seen. We live in hiding. We've heard about the resurrection, but we're not really listening to what it means. We follow Jesus to an extent, but maybe like the disciples, we're just waiting for Jesus to finally give us what we wanted all along. We want you to give to us whatever it is we ask. Can you give me the life that I want now? And here's the thing, friends, if you are in Christ, that life died. It entered the grave. And Jesus says, I have come to give you life abundant. I've come to give you resurrected life. And here's the thing, it's probably not going to look like the life that you're asking for, but I can promise you and assure you it is so much better. How do you fill in the blank? What is your life supposed to look like now? Your greatest enemy has been defeated. You have been raised with Christ. That means that here in the midst of a world that is obsessed with death, you are Easter people, that you are risen. And, and that means that we're people that every morning we get up and what we do is that we, we practice that resurrection. That we reenact it, that we remember that we are not what we once were, that we have been raised with Christ. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says that church is the appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus' life. So what do we do? How do we fill in the blank? I'll say two things and I'll be quiet. 
go tell, right? That's the first thing that this angel that they see, they walk into this tomb. He's not here. Go tell. Go tell that he is risen. Go tell that he did exactly what he said he was going to do. That's what the the angel tells these women. Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And that's that's our job too. Who do we tell? Let me say this. First and foremost, you've got to tell yourself every morning. You have to look in the mirror every morning and you have to tell yourself, my life is no longer the sum of what I do or don't do today. That's death, right? I am not the sum of my greatest accomplishments and I'm not the sum of my greatest failure. No, my life is hidden in Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it's he who lives in me. That means that, that I've been set free from all of the things that I most fear and I most dread and that my life is now united with Jesus and I am bound to Jesus for all eternity. None of those things I most dread get the final word over me. If God is for us, who in the world could be against us? Go tell. Start by telling yourself And then let it work its way out from there. Your life is going to indicate that there's something different. Tell people. He's risen. He is your only hope. But when we tell people, what do we do? We go and forgive. Did you notice that the the people that are, who go and deliver the news of the resurrection, who are the first people they go to? The first people they go to tell are the very ones who deserted Jesus in his final hour. The very ones who all ran away and fled, the very ones who denied him, even knowing him. Go and tell them and Peter that, I, that, that Jesus is risen. Go and offer them life, the life of the resurrection. One, one man writing 150 years ago, I think, said this. He said, let us leave. This is his takeaway from this passage, and I love it. Let us leave this passage with a determination to open the door of mercy very wide to sinners. Let us leave it with a resolution never to be unforgiving toward other people. If Christ is so ready to forgive us, we ought to be ready to forgive others. Friends, you haven't been raised with Christ and freed from the curse of death so that you can escape this world and go fly away to another one. You've been freed from the curse of death so that you might be set free to love this world. The world that God so loved that he sent his only son into it. The resurrection is just the beginning of the reversal of death, the renewal of this world. And friends, You, your life, is part of, and in many ways, is the rest of that story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for life abundant that we have in Jesus. We confess that as we followed him, he has brought things into our life that we don't often like. That he has promised that if we come after him, that there will be difficulty and there will be suffering. But Father, we thank you that the curse that was hanging over our heads has been eradicated. 
and that we have been invited to feast at your table forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.